I'm Chris, and welcome to this week's episode of To Be Published, a podcast that provides organizational leaders with the tools to integrate and synchronize sustainment and to generate combat power. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, the Combined Arms Center, or Army University. So to start with, we'll be talking about sustainment in general, defining the warfighting function, and talking about how to integrate and synchronize sustainment into the other warfighting functions. The Army is undergoing its largest modernization period since the early 1980s and preparing to fight and win in a multi-domain operation. With me today are two individuals who are perfectly suited to have this discussion. We've got Mr. Paul Schlemm, the Director of the Department of Sustainment and Force Management here at the Command and General Staff College, and Mr. Nils Erickson, the Director and Course Author of the Sustainment Block. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us, Chris. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, so if we go ahead and start off, Nils, I'll, I'll open with you. Why don't you talk us through the sustainment warfighting function? Um, well, first, before I even kind of talk about the sustainment warfighting function, I always like to talk about it and couch it in terms of the important, importance of it in terms of generating and maintaining combat power. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And for the students at CGSC, we just went through force management, which is really the process that we use on the enterprise level to provide the forces to the combatant commanders, and that's in terms of developing them. Sustainment plays a key role in that from the integration piece into the actual area where we go ahead and fight. So that understanding of how to generate and maintain that combat power actually produces the combat power at the end of the day. That's why sustainment itself is one of the key components of combat power itself. Awesome, thank you. Uh, now that we're on the same page by that, uh, Mr. Slim, I was wondering if you could give us a, some discussion about combat power, uh, generating and maintaining it that, that Nils had talked about. Yeah, I, I, just to amplify what Nils said, you know, we defined combat power doctrinally as a total means of destructive uh, constructive information capabilities that a military unit or formation can apply at any given time. But what we have to keep in mind is, particularly when we're focused on large-scale combat operations, like we are here um, at CGSOC and as we transition to the Advanced Operations Course, um, the commander, and in this case, that commander is always going to be the maneuver commander, has to generate a relative advantage in combat power over the adversary or the enemy to succeed. And we talk about different relative advantages depending on the type of operations that you're operating, fighting. You know, if it's a if it's a short of short of conflict, we've tried over the last several decades to generate an information advantage. For instance, during the Cold War, we used Radio Free Europe to broadcast our version of the truth into the East Bloc. For instance, that was an information advantage. But when we're fighting large-scale combat operations, it is an advantage in combat power. And traditional rules say if I'm going to go on the offense, for instance, I need a three to one advantage over the enemy. So how do we how do we generate that? Well, we don't have a lot of extra resources anymore. We don't have a large class seven reserve. We okay. don't have class seven is class seven is uh, major end items. I don't have when I grew up in the Army in the late eighties when I first came in, when we were focused on defeating the Russians and so forth in the Warsaw Pact. We had yards of spare tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles and 113s and Humvees and other assorted gear. 
sitting in warehouses back in, in western West Germany. Um, we had a healthy pipeline of replacements for personnel as well. We don't have that anymore. So as sustainers, when we talk about generating and maintaining combat power on behalf of the commander to generate that relative advantage, we have to understand that we don't have a lot of resources behind us. So I have to have a very decent maintenance program. I have to have a very detailed CASAVAC and treatment plan so I can get return to duties back into the force, for instance. And that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we're talking to commanders. And an example is if I'm a brigade logistics planner and I know that through the MDMP process that the brigade commander is going to rely heavily on unmanned aerial systems for the reconnaissance fight or the counter-reconnaissance fight. I should have this Pavlovian response to turn around to division, say how many replacement systems are in the pipeline and how many are earmarked for my brigade, where are we at in the priority? So I can advise the commander, hey, hey boss, if, if you're going to do that course of action, understand that I can replace two of those systems. Once those two systems are gone, your ability to regenerate unmanned reconnaissance is going to go down. So you have to have a secondary plan, ground reconnaissance, what have you rely on division assets or strategic reconnaissance or so forth. Same thing with personnel. Um, if we can do a good casualty estimate and a good medical plan and estimate how many return to duties we have, for instance, then I can be able to advise the commander that by this phase of the operation, we think your combat power is going to be here. Irrespective of what your material readiness is, I'm going to start running out of crews. Um, and that's just, that's just what we need to look at as sustainers. And how do we figure out where that combat power is over time? Well, there's a, there's a few things. We have to pay attention to the operational framework. Now, currently, we have the construct of decisive shaping and sustaining operations. My understanding is with the new 3.0, they're doing away with those and just focused on main and supporting efforts. So if I know that I'm fighting the decisive operation and Task Force 137 Armored, for instance, is the main effort, in 20 hours, then I need to know a couple of things. What is their current state of combat power? And how much of that can I regenerate through maintenance or return to duty? And where is that relative to the enemy that we're going to fight? Maybe their current combat power is sufficient to generate a three to one advantage, and I can focus my priorities on the supporting effort. But that requires a healthy and accurate set of reports as well. So where am I now? What's reporting that? And how accurate and how much do I trust those reports? How much can I generate prior to crossing the LD? All that determines what the priorities are. Uh, but combat power is not the sustainer. The, the maneuver commander owns that combat power, and all the warfighting functions have to play a role in helping the, helping the commander generate that relative advantage. Well, and I think that's a great point about the combat power and the elements of combat power. Um, but what we need to understand as sustainers sometimes when you back up is sometimes we don't understand what the components of sustainment are. And there's really four key components of sustainment now. And that's where you get into the logistics for, is, is one of the phases. Mm -hmm. And logistics broadly covers maintenance operations, transportation operations, supply, distribution, field services, which includes mortuary affairs, air loading, uh, water production. It also includes operational contract support, and a lot of people understand it also includes general engineering uh, in terms of building life support areas and things like that. Um, it also includes, though, 
health service support. That's the second aspect of sustainment. That health service support, which gets into casualty care, gets into casualty evacuation itself, as well as medical logistics, which kind of follows a very similar pattern to regular Army logistics, but it's kind of outside of it uh, and managed a little bit more detailed to go ahead and make sure we get the right stuff, especially when you're dealing with blood product uh, and some of those narcotics type things that are controlled. The third one is really personnel services, and you talked about it there, about the personnel replacement. It also includes legal support, mail, as well as, believe it or not, band support. Mm -hmm. As my old battalion commander said, there's two types of generals, those that want bands and those that have bands. So that's the way that breaks down. And, and for the record, because I have in the past been not quite a great supporter of the band, but their doctrinal function in combat is to guard part of the division area and the division talk. So they serve as a uh, fighting force as well as mm. uh, the motivation stuff that we all kind of see at Changes of Command. They have that, and they also work very well in the uh, information operations and building relations, especially when you're in Phase 1 mm. or Phase 0 of operations. I uh, had a lot of band officers in there talking about that. Um, but then the fourth one, and this is the newest, uh, just added recently to sustainment is financial management, and that's in terms of financial operations as well as resource management. And again, financial operations is all about buying readiness and the amount of money that we spend and how we manage those assets and being good stewards is really all about buying readiness, whether it's the maintenance for the vehicles or the training for the soldiers to go ahead and do it. And that's really then what sustainment brings to the fight to help do the things Paul was talking about before when you start getting those missions. What are we going to do and how are we going to think about it? So I think those are very valuable aspects to go ahead and bring into the discussion of combat power, building it and maintaining it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. Now that we're on that, on that same page, I want to talk a little about integrating and synchronizing. Uh, different words <coughs> that mean different things. But I was wondering if you could have a discussion about integrating. How uh, do we integrate the sustainment warfighting function and what role do our field grade officers have in doing that? I'll go first, Paul. Do you want me to? No, go ahead. No. Okay. Well, again, I think uh, in terms of integration, it all begins at the beginning of planning. And I always tell the sustainers, don't let themselves be partially. Um, don't sit back and allow yourself to be pushed to the side of the plate. It starts with an aggressive running estimate and building that running estimate. So when you go to meetings, you clearly understand what our capabilities are in terms of sustainment and what the requirements are for the anticipated mission. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, when you start coming to those, those meetings and you start talking to the commanders, it's all about providing them options. So again, sustainment helps you bring freedom of action, which is providing options to the commander, prolonged endurance, as well as extending the operational reach. And if you come to those meetings and MDMP sessions fully prepared and understanding what your capabilities and requirements are, you become value added to the process. And once you come to those processes, not waiting until, uh, waiting until they ask you to do something, but you go ahead and integrate yourself, which is one of the principles of sustainment, integrate yourself into the process, provide those options. They view you as value added. Mm -hmm. You're bringing options to the commander. You're not being the toad in the road saying no. And so one of the things you had mentioned in terms of determining requirements, there's a mnemonic that helps us uh, sort of remember that. It's Dr. Ackham's. Well, and I, I always add to Dr. Akams, which is determine, determine requirements, assess capabilities, mitigate short, shortfalls, 
And I think he's an ER doctor because he has to evaluate risk. There we mm -hmm. go. So I go ahead and always add those into it because at the end of the day, if you can communicate effectively to the commander what those requirements, what those capabilities are, what you've done to mitigate them, and then say, hey, and if we don't do this, this is the risk. If we do this, I'm, I limit risk here. And again, it's about providing them options and understanding mm -hmm. and informing them what the cost of those options can be. Yeah, and to amplify what Neil said, I mean, doctrine, again, points to integration as being critical. If you look at combat power, uh, we've talked about what it is. The definition is the war fighting functions plus leadership plus information. So necessarily, sustainment is integrated with all the other war fighting functions, and we're all interdependent on each other. As I said, there's, there's several options we can use to generate that relative advantage in combat power. For instance, um, I can use fires to decrement the enemy's combat power relative to mine prior to crossing the LD. That comes with a bill uh, for distribution of class five for artillery. Um, I can use the terrain to amplify the effects of my combat power relative to the enemy's by shaping operations to isolate portions of the enemy's combat power by, do, you know, destroying or, or, or interdicting a piece of road network that they need or whatever. Um, I may need that road network in the future as a sustainer, for instance, too. So there has to be that back and forth conversation between the intel warfighting function and the sustainment warfighting function. I think the intel warfighting function and us share a common lament a lot of times that they expected everything, they didn't tell us what they needed. Right? The intel folks at any echelon have a finite ability to receive and process and, and analyze information. So as other warfighting functions, if I'm a sustainer, I'm going to tell the S2 what I want them to focus on without having them to guess. Hey, look, I need to know the status of what's going on with, with displaced civilians in this area. I need to know the status of that bridge. If that bridge goes down, you need to tell me immediately. I need to know the status of this, this MSR because that's going to become the main supply route once we reach phase whatever the operation. Um, so it's all independent. And if I'm an engineer, uh, if I know that we're going to transition to the defense, I can't bring up enough class four barrier material on my own. I'm going to need the sustainable warfighting function to help. So that integration piece is important, and there should be certain Pavlovian responses amongst the staff, certainly on the sustainment side. And I talk about artillery a lot because that is one of the main ways we can tip the scales in combat power relative to the enemy. But if I know that the FIS cord came out of a targeting board, and I didn't happen to have a sustainer in that planning board, and the FIS cord hasn't come up and talked to me, I need to go find that individual and say, hey, what's changed in the targeting matrix? How does that affect timings and, and quantities and, and configuration for delivery of artillery class five? Same thing if I'm transitioning to the defense and the engineer hasn't come up and talked to me. Well, I need to go up to the engineer and have that conversation. You know, that, the notion that, well, they didn't ask for it, so I didn't plan for it, is not going to get us through what we need to do for large-scale combat operations. So that's the integration piece. Well, and, and it's great that you mentioned that, especially with the transitions in the integration, because what that ultimately leads to is our ability to go ahead and uh, synchronize sustainment with the warfighter and with the operations itself. Right. So as you go through the planning process and you think about those transitions, you always, I always talk about having to be a half step ahead of the maneuverist because what you have to think about is what's next. 
how do I set conditions for the next phase of the operation? Mm -hmm. And you have to go ahead and start placing the pieces and the sustainment pieces and building what you want to go ahead and get up to wherever, whether it's to the delivery point for the artillery, mm -hmm. delivery point, drop-off point for the class four drop-off point for the engineers. You've really got to understand that scheme of maneuver and when they're going from one transition to the other. Mm -hmm. Because sustainment, you can't just snap your fingers and make it happen. There is a physical environment that we have to move the stuff through. We actually physically have to load stuff up on the vehicles and move it to you. So by being able to plan, anticipate, and fully integrate in the plan that will allow us to go ahead and synchronize mm -hmm. with the maneuver plan to go ahead and deliver the right stuff at the right place at the right time. But again, you've got to really be aggressive with doing that and really develop a good staff, uh, cohesive staff that really works together mm -hmm. and understands the importance of synchronizing. And where you really can bring that together is during the war fighting phase, uh, war gaming phase, yeah. the analysis mm -hmm. during COA development is another great place where when you're integrated into the planning process, you can then synchronize all of those war fighting functions and make sure in teams of time and space, things are getting to the right place right. at the right time. And a lot of times in wargaming, you can actually back up and say, hey, if I want to have this here, I've got to back up two turns to start moving that to that location. Uh, so that's really the way at the end of the day, integration leads to the synchronization. And sustainers that tell me they don't do MDMP and don't participate in it are really kind of guilty of not integrating and not synchronizing and then are always trying to play catch up because they're, they're flat footed yeah. and they'll never play, they'll never get ahead in the game. And I think after... Uh, the wargaming part, when you start getting into the rehearsals, that's another critical step for synchronization as well, to, to ensure you're synchronized with the plan. And, you know, a lot of times we see a separate rehearsal for maneuver and a separate rehearsal yeah. for sustainment, and it, they can be separated, but you have to have a lot of the same attendees. The commander, you know, needs to understand that his plan is synchronized and that his subordinate commanders understand the synchronization uh, of sustainment and that it is nested uh, with mm. the maneuver plan. Well, I would always say that the, that the maneuver um, rehearsal really is not just a maneuver rehearsal. It's really a rehearsal of everything because within that, you need to have the intel, the fires, and the sustainment because really what that rehearsal is, it's the application of combat power. So they have to have all of the elements at that one there. Now what you will see beforehand a lot of times is the sustainers and the uh, fighters guys will have their own rehearsers prior to the car. And the reason they do that is so they can synchronize within their, their own assets and really kind of have that all wickered so they understand the timings in terms of what can be where, when, and what needs to be on road so it's very clear during the combined arms rehearsal. And it's the same thing with the fires guy for when they have to be in what position to fire when. So I think that's a great TTP is a lot of times, you know, they'll do the uh, sustainment rehearsal after the car, but instead doing it before and perhaps another one after if we need to adjust the plan mm -hmm. uh, during and that comes out uh, during the rehearsal. But but Niels brings up a couple of concepts that we, we need to go back and revisit real quick. One of them is capability. OK, we talk in terms of capability oftentimes and and not in the right way in that if i have a line item on a task organization then i understand what my capabilities are that particular to the sustainment warfighting function and in a lot of cases the engineering warfighting function is or the engineering uh 
the branch is, is not the way it works. And, and the reason I say that is we're notorious for putting like the 264th Quartermaster Company on a task organization. Well, there's umpty um in a thousand different flavors of a, is it a composite supply company? Is it a water purification company? Is it a PLS? Well, that would be a trans company, but that nomenclature is not sufficient to tell us what that capability is. Once we understand what type of quartermaster company it is, for instance, we should have a book that shows us what we can receive, store, issue, produce, distribute, whatever, whatever the capability that is, over what time horizon, so we can make some judgments based on math versus just the same. And I say the engineer branch as well because I'm getting the 833rd engineer company. Well, is it a multi-role bridge company? Is it a combat engineering? What, what does it do? So we have to understand what the capabilities are that we possess. We also need to understand what capabilities are resident in the echelons behind us. Because that division sustainment support battalion, for instance, as we get the DSSBs online, are only going to have enough capacity to receive store and issue as well. And if I'm one of several brigades being supported by that DSB, I have to know what they can do and have that conversation with them saying, hey, look, we're going to do a deliberate breach of a complex obstacle between this phase and that phase of the operation. I don't have enough sustainment to support that. I'm going to need you guys to augment us. And then we can have that conversation with the higher echelon SPO saying, well, I do or do not have the capability. So I can go back and advise the commander where we need to take risk uh, and so forth. The other thing is it is a math problem. Okay, It's a time-distance equation. I can't drive a log pack 50 kilometers at the drop of a hat from the DSSB to the rear of a battalion if I'm doing throughput delivery. So I need to know what the timings of the phase are. Who's going to do what operationally during that phase? And then you just have to backwards plan from a time distance factor. And whether we can support it with, with our distribution capability or have to go an echelon behind us, or in some cases, if it's an ammunition delivery, all the way back up to the core ammunition company, because recall that 80% of the ammunition we get at the brigade level by doctrine is supposed to come from echelons above division. And how am I communicating what that needs to be configured like? And where that needs to be delivered and when that needs to be delivered, that's more than just paying attention to our own combined arms rehearsal. And I think those are great points, especially on the capabilities. And you talked before about can't do it at a drop of a hat. And that's why a lot of times I think what needs to happen when you're maintaining your running estimate and you're addressing your capabilities, a lot of times instead of saying I have 22 PLS trucks that can carry this much tons, what you really need to get into is, I can carry this many flat racks over a distance of this for this amount of time. And, and kind of couch it that way, because that actually tells a commander something that he understands. Uh, don't talk in terms of short tons, talk in terms of flat racks, 20-foot equivalent units, because you can visualize that, and talk in terms of, I got these trucks, they can deliver this much over this period of time. So once I kick those out, yeah. it takes me 10 hours to deliver that amount of cargo and when you start including that in your plan then that's how you can effectively communicate the higher headquarters that you're out of schlitz that you need more to go ahead and do the mission because you show you've done the math and you've taken it to the next level to, to truly understand what you can do and what you can support but that that gets to that gets to the advanced level of synchronization and uh it it, it 
you have to pay attention to a lot of factors. And a, for instance, if I'm in a tactical assembly area after RSO and R, and I'm going to move several hundred kilometers to another location, right? I'm going to need head support to do that. A heavy equipment transport. Heavy equipment transport. Well, we carry tanks system, with. right? Yeah. They carry tanks. Or at least you would prefer to have. <laughs> right. And so <laughs> if I go out and coordinate this head support and I coordinate a pickup point that I haven't actually done a recon on, those things are relatively large systems. And it takes a lot of space to get them into a loading point, parked in a loading point, maneuvered around a loading point. The tanks have to be able to move around there. And if you, and that sounds like a, you know, a one-off-the-wall example, but that is an example where lack of thinking through the ramifications of making a decision for sustainment can come back to haunt you. The, if the surface tension of that ground doesn't support hats, brother, you're going to have a problem, and that's going to have an operational effect. Um, a bunch of hats stuck in the mud. Absolutely, or no space. If you're so, we haven't we have a historical example that we talked about back when I used to teach Charlie 400 about um, what happened in the European Theater of Operations uh, in August, September of 1944 and why we ended up almost culminating operationally. We had to choose between going into Market Garden, we had to choose between supplying Patton, but if you go all the way back to Normandy, we had no ports at that time. We took Cherbourg, Cherbourg was destroyed by the Germans before uh, before they, before we kicked them out of Cherbourg, we built two artificial ports in the Normandy beaches. One was destroyed in a storm, one was partially destroyed. But if you look further inland, okay, and it doesn't look that way now if you go to Normandy, but think of the Normandy area of operations segmented into these hedgerows, okay, with very narrow lanes between the hedgerows, and the hedgerows boxed in these fields, and you're the 863rd fuel company. Our primary means of distributing fuel at that time was five-gallon cans. So imagine trying to get deuce and a halfs down a very narrow lane, hedged in by six or eight-foot tall hedgerows, loading that deuce and a half with five-gallon fuel cans by hand, and then turning on the road network where we destroyed the rail network, a lot of bridges were down and whatnot. So that's where physical terrain is a detriment to sustainment operations. If we don't factor those in in future operations, and again, an example might be um, if we have to interdict bridges to amplify the terrain's effect on the enemy, well, it's going to take a while for a multi-role bridge company to span that wet gap. Then it's going to take a traffic control plan that talks about only only the sustainers can use that from 0800 to 14, whatever it is. Um, we can't wish any of that stuff away. So you have to have this notion what are the second and third order effects based on the capabilities I have, based on the timings I have, based on what I know the operational plan is? And it's it. And I'll go back to a point I made earlier. A lot of it is also predicated on really good reporting. And reporting is not a sustainer's function; it's an operator's function. And communication yeah. between units. So not just one-way communication or I wrote it down Discipline. in a plan. Yeah. yeah. Discipline in the system. That gets that synchronization piece. It, yeah. It is funny that you bring up the beaches of Normandy and the lack of ports. The interesting thing is we actually pushed more tonnage of cargo across those beaches without the ports right. than we actually anticipated doing it. So that was kind of a, an interesting aside in history. But we don't, 
We don't really want to digress into the, the market garden and broad front no, strategy. That's, that's another great discussion. Yeah. That is good, but, but the flip side of that is by 1st of September 1944, over 80% of what we offloaded across the beaches was still in the greater Normandy area because we lacked the distribution capability to push it forward. Correct, and we actually took apart artillery units, disbanded artillery units and used their truck to go ahead and do the transportation for it because we didn't send enough transportation right. units there and it kind of had the old division run elastic effect there well, when we broke out. But that's that's a good point too though, Nils, because, and it was not just artillery units, it was uh, several infantry divisions. We we could we had the choice of putting them in the line and not being able to support them or using that manpower to push supplies forward. But we did the same thing in, because we did not anticipate the success we were going to have. Catastrophic, Catastrophic success. success. Right. Yeah. But if you look at what happened in Iraq in 2003, we did not anticipate the level of resistance along the lines of communication that the Fedayeen and state behind forces would do. We, had, we used Desert Storm as, a, as an analog where as soon as we passed forces in Desert Storm, they gave up. Sometimes they gave up before we got there. Didn't happen in 2003. So again, the commander, maneuver commander, had to make a decision to pull combat power out of the line to do lines of, the lines of communication security. And that comes with its own sustainment bill. And that comes with its own coordination pieces and synchronization pieces. So there's there's bits and pieces we can use from studying history and why we were in the situations we were in, and what were the ramifications across all the warfighting functions, but certainly for sustainment. And, and it's funny you bring up the whole Iraq thing and having to divert combat power to secure the lines of communication, because it's exactly what Napoleon had to do in 1812 as he yeah. moved into Russia. I mean, it's, it's just over and over again you see the same issue repeating itself, that those lines of communication are contested. And if you want to go ahead and sustain yourself, yeah. that is an important operation that you have to dedicate some type of combat power or security forces to, yeah. to go ahead and secure that. Otherwise, it just won't happen. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, that gets into the integration of warfighting functions. Man, imagine that, going into protection. As, so. we, as we try and integrate our curriculum here at the Command and Staff Officers course. Heresy. So one of our primary audiences that uh, is going to be listening to this are going to be field grade officers. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just briefly, we've already touched on it quite a bit, Yeah. Uh, but what is the role of the field grade in this integration and synchronization? What can our listeners drag away from this and how do they do it? Well, let, let me start at the macro level. And I'll use a piece of advice I give faculty that show up here at the Department of Sustainment and Force Management. You know, we talk about command philosophies and, and how we approach our roles as field grade officers and so forth. And I was fortunate, my father-in-law was a, <laughs> he was a terrific individual. He commanded 17 Cav in Vietnam in 1967-68. Uh, and he, he and I used to have conversations about this. And he said, you know, by the time I became a lieutenant colonel, my command philosophy boiled down to something very simple. Leave things better than you found them. So I, I took a page and uh, I tell folks that come here to the department, there's only three things you have to be aware of to be successful as a field grade. And I call those the three B's. First, be on time. Second, be prepared for whatever it is you're supposed to do when you get there. And the third one is be willing to grab hold of anything that looks like a problem that passes in front of you and then we'll do one of two things. Either we'll confirm it's your problem to work with and we'll put the right team together to help you solve it. Or we confirm it's not. We just don't let it go. We don't play the not my job. We hold on to that thing. We work our communication systems and we find the right person to solve it and then we help them. 
And as you, if you translate that into a staff officer, it's the same thing we touched on earlier from the intel side, from the sustainment side. Well, they didn't ask for it, so I didn't plan for it. That's not the way we do business. If you know, for instance, as I said, you're transitioning to the defense, and that's just an example, and you know there's a class four bill, and you know there's engineer release points that we're gonna have to deliver to, and no one's coordinated that with you, and you let that go, you're abrogating your role as a, as a field grade officer. So it's that's at the macro level. And Neil's specific to the sustainment war fighting function, what do you think? Well, there's a lot of things, and I'm not nearly as eloquent as you are boiling things down into three three uh, little distinct things. But the first thing is know your profession. Know your unit and what its capabilities are. I mean, at, at the beginning of the day, that's where your running estimate starts. And if yeah. you don't know what you can do and what is doctrinally sound to do it, you are not going to be very successful at it. Yeah. The second one is, and I know all you guys growing up keep hearing about relationships and how important relationships are, and they are. But what I'll tell you as a field grade officer, you need to be worried about systems and maintaining systems, putting systems in place that can go ahead and operate when you're not there. Now you can use the personal relationships to make those systems yeah. work and get them off the ground, but you have to have those systems in place because if you're not there or you're getting sleep, the system will fail ultimately. Yeah. And that goes to your point of leaving it better than you found it. And the way you leave it better than you found it is by having those good systems that anybody can go ahead and operate. They know what has to happen when. And then go ahead and integrating those into the MDMP process. Yeah. The other one is really, uh, this is going to kind of sound kind of bad, and I talk to this a lot of times in my uh, support operations class or theater sustainment planners prep class, is a lot of times sustainers will fall into this whole mode of the maneuver guy won't listen to me. Woe is me. They, I told them this, and they didn't listen to me and didn't do it. Understand that the three has to integrate all of the warfighting yeah. functions. And just because they don't take your advice on two or three things for how you do it, doesn't mean they're not listening. They're the ones that ultimately have to go ahead and evaluate the risk and take the risk upon them. That's why that whole Dr. Acom's EM that we talked about, determining requirements, assessing capabilities, mitigating shortfalls, and estimating risk really becomes important, is telling that three what the risk is so they really understand what you mean uh, and talk in doctrinal terms. Don't, don't use the makeup stuff that we do all the time yeah. uh, and be a problem solver. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's a great point, Nels, about the systems approach as well. And we have the systems. So broadly speaking, what do we do as staffs? One is we enable the commander's decision cycle. Yep. And the second one is we do analysis to make sure the operation stays on target with our execution matrices and things like that. But talking about the decision cycle, um, the primary system we have as staff to keep the boss on track with decisions is, is the decision support matrix. And... I don't know how many times I've advised staffs back when I was at BCTP and MCTP to lead off every briefing with the DSM. Hey, Commander, we are 12 hours into the operation and decision point one is coming up, we think, in about six hours. We've answered this CCIR. We're about 80% answered on that one. We're about 60% on that one. We'll come to you as soon as we have them and then you're going to need to make a decision. Okay, and all the warfighting functions should be focused in on that. And as sustainers, we struggle with that. And this is a bit convoluted, but if I know that decision point two is, a, is an adjustment decision that the commander is going to make for an axis of advance because of enemy situations, that's going to cause us to change our distribution plan because we're going left versus right, for instance. 
then necessarily we need to put a cognitive NAI over that decision point on the maneuver commander's decision support matrix. Our collection asset has to be the four, and our decision that at the sustainment headquarters is which way we're going to deliver that. We have to pay attention to that. And if you do that on the sly or only through relationships, like you yep. said, you're not going to be able to keep up under the pressure. But that's not to say relationships aren't important, particularly back in garrison. You have to get out of your desk. You have to get off your email. You have to walk around and talk to your peers and subordinates and superiors that you either work for or don't work for to develop that feel of what's unfolding in front of you so you can have that decision space and make important decisions and fix things before they become bigger problems. If you're waiting for the world to come to you, and I know that we are all enamored of our smartphones and social media and whatnot, that's not the way you get after the complex business that we're doing here as, as field grid officers. Oh, and I love the point you made about a decision support template for the sustainers in terms of an NAI, because I talk a lot of times when I teach a support operations course, especially the majors that say we don't need to do MDMP and we don't need to do this wargaming and stuff, that's actually a great way to go through uh, your own after the wargaming, what we do in terms of synchronizing the sustainment <clears throat> assets and integrating that because the sustainment battalion commander and the SPO have decisions to make too. Absolutely. And, and if they don't have that template and they're down or they're out of communications, Nobody really understands what those yeah. conditions are, and nobody's really feeding them the information they need to go ahead and make that decision. Yeah, so again, it's very important that we understand that the processes we have apply evenly across the board. They're applied differently, um, and the, the sub-process might be a little bit different in terms of what information you're looking for. Yeah. But broadly speaking, you're exactly correct on that, Paul. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, and thank you for being here uh, on our inaugural episode of To Be Published. Uh, before we let you go, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Some of these are off the cuff, but uh, uh, first, tell us something about yourself, uh, and keep in mind that this is going out on the radio, that people may not know. Hmm. Me first? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think a few people know this, but not many, that I was a, uh, a rugby player for many years, and I was actually on the All-Army Rugby Team in 1991 and again in 1993 as a prop and a hooker. Ah, awesome. Well, I, my, my thing, I think the department's tired of me talking about it, but not many other people might know that I'm in a rock and roll cover band. I play lead and rhythm guitar. They sing on several songs amongst our sets, and that is my out-of-work hobby. And, and again, I've always advised officers that you've got to find something that goes beyond what you do on a daily basis because eventually we're all going to take the uniform off. And if your sense of self is embodied in the patches you wear and the skill badges you wear you're going to have a hard time transitioning so find something that is unrelated to work grab a hold of that and get after it and i can say with a lot of authority that chasing rock and roll dreams as a 56 year old is not a bad thing to do <laughs> the point of clarification i was an alternate on that team so i was like on the bench so i was like one of the replacements <laughs> wasn't a starter well you got there though um so another question uh, do you have a good book or movie uh, for the modern professional officer? I will have to go back and get the title of it, but one of the things that I've been studying lately is innovation and how we diffuse innovation amongst the force. In a big organization like us in the military, we can put out a bumper sticker 
that says we're innovators, but what we're finding out through studies on how to diffuse new topics and things, we have to be very deliberate. We have to have the systems in place, we have to have the command climate in place, and we have to have the right people looking at the right problems and be open-minded to some crazy off-the-wall suggestions uh, without crushing the initiative of a subordinate you've asked to come up with those crazy wild off-the-wall decisions. And it's the same thing with running an OPT, for instance. If you're field grade, you have a certain level of, of gravity that you don't have as a company grade. And if you're running an OPT as a major and something innovative comes across the front and you're very dismissive or cavalier in your response to that, the OPT is going to sit on their hands and wait for you to come up with all the genius ideas. Because I just, unfortunately, I don't remember the book. We'll, we'll get it from you, and yeah. we'll put it in the description awesome. down below this episode. Um, the one I have, and this is maybe not necessarily uh, in the ballpark of something that military would normally read because it's not a military topic, but it's called The Box. And it's essentially about how the shipping container changed the world from 1950 up until today. And it talks about its impacts on international trade, globalization, making the world a smaller place, and oh, by the way, in today's world, especially now with the supply chain issues you have, you can actually track it to all of the efficiencies that were achieved by the shipping container. So it's really kind of, I'm waiting for the update. I would wait for the update on that one, though, because I'm sure after the COVID thing, they're going to go ahead and do another update and add another chapter about the shortfalls of what it created. And then the other one is, I also can't remember the name of the book, but it's on machine learning. Uh, and again, it's right. going into AI. Um, which I think is going to have a huge impact on the military and sustainment going into the future. So again, expand your horizons. The innovation that you get sometimes isn't by just studying history, but it's really studying on everything that's going on in the world around us. Yeah, and one of the books that I've recently read on that is uh, Machine Platform Crowd, now, kind of separated by commas there. It talks about machine learning, talks about platforms. Podcasting is a platform as an example. Uh, Facebook, etc., and then crowd meeting, crowdsourcing, and how we get ideas. All three, I think, which mm -hmm. are instrumental uh, moving forward and how we're going to conduct uh, our business more efficiently and and more effectively. Uh, so once again, gentlemen, I want to thank you uh, for coming on to our show uh, on this inaugural episode, and to our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, at the end of each episode, we'll attempt to highlight a tool or a resource that you can use in your journey to being a better field grade officer. Uh, on today's tip, in addition to the awesome ones we've got uh, from our two guests, I'd like you to check out the new Army Sustainment Resource Portal that ran by the Combined Arms Support Command. It's very nice. It's the newly renovated and much more user-friendly Sustainment One-Stop. You may have known it as that. You can find it at www.cascom.army.mil slash ASRP. And while you're there, check out the new sustainment training strategy. Released earlier this year, the sustainment training strategy focuses on sustaining readiness in a LISCO environment and postures sustainment for modernization and reform in preparation for full multi-domain operations in 2028. You will need a CAC card uh, to access this document, however. Thanks again for listening, and join us next time on To Be Published.